Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track podcast. I'm Stu Whiffin, I'm your host. I hope you're doing well. Good, 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 good. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode is pretty damn wonderful. I went to Ilpai Island. Uh, go and Google that if you don't know where it is. Um, because it was absolutely spectacular. And the reason I went there was to sit and have a pod chat with Blaine Harrison of the Mystery Jets. And it was delightful. Uh, Blaine's an absolute gentleman. Um, we had a really nice time, had a, had a good chat, which um, I'm really excited that you're about to hear. Um, before we get on with it, I'd just like to thank Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, thanks to everybody over at podbiblemag.com. And thanks to Mr. 76, the producer. Um, I think that's it. We can just get on with the podcast. So please enjoy today's episode which is with Blaine Harrison of the Mystery Jets. 76, drop that intro. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket and then on the way out, 
Put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with him. Okay, we're recording. We are... This is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most beautiful location. Uh, well, it's one of the most beautiful locations I've sat in in a long, long time. Yet, uh, not alone to record a podcast. I'm, I'm on Ilpai Island, um, looking out over lots of houseboats and a, and a beautiful river. Uh, it's absolutely idyllic. And uh, and and sitting next to me is is Blaine Harrison. Hello. All right. <laughs> yeah, very good, thanks. So we've already had a, a, a chat and we've, we've when you started telling me about, you, you can't access this island unless you walk across a little footbridge and it's, it's, quite, it's quite a cracker's environment to walk into, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sure it's probably quite normal to you because you've obviously lived there for a, for a long time. But I, I want to definitely talk about this as this podcast unfolds because it's, it's an incredible place and I'm sure as we start to talk about the formative years at a band that this 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 place will be quite important in that, it is it's that. very i think there's a lot of synergy between definitely the story of of the band and the, and the story of the island we're, we're kind of you know um we're sort of forever linked really i i mean i'm not sure we'd be doing what what we do today if it wasn't for you know for for finding this place it's yeah got, i think it's got magical powers yeah yeah i think so wonderful Blaine, I always start this podcast uh, with track one, and that, that question is, what is the song with the greatest ever intro? I had to think about this a little bit, um, for a little bit, but actually, um, there's no doubt in my mind that the, song, that the song with the greatest intro is Money for Nothing Okay. Um, by Dire Straits. Uh, released, I think it was 1985, uh, the year I was born. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a vintage year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the album version. Well, first of all, Brothers in Arms was the best selling record in Britain for mm-hmm. the eighties. So it was an it was a monster. Mm. Twenty five million copies. I think it mm. sold worldwide. So it was a huge, huge album. And obviously, this that song is very associated with the start of MTV. Mm-hmm. And you know, the video had. I actually watched it back. Um, when I was thinking about when I was thinking about the intro, and it is it's still an amazing video, you yeah. know it's got all the kind of hand drawn um like animations on the video, and his sweatbands all yeah. light up uh it's pretty iconic cutting edge stuff, but I think what one of the things that's so amazing about it and this this isn't a guilty pleasure by the way i mean i don't really believe in the concept of guilty pleasure shouldn't be guilty about a pleasure no the, i i feel absolutely no guilt or remorse in 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 a in loving dire straits but i think what is one of the things that's so incredible about about it is is the way you get into the song i mean that riff that we all know mm. um doesn't come in for a minute and a half. Yeah, that's the payoff, isn't it? That's the payoff. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's really, 
I think once you're into the riff, you're into the tune. Really, it's just yeah. it's it's it, but it's the point getting up to that that it's it's like a masterclass in suspense. Yeah, there's this, and it uh, I believe it all came about afterwards. So originally, when Notfla brought brought the the tune into, they're recording in um in Montserrat in our studios in Montserrat, uh, which I believe was it was George Martin's studio, okay. one of his. And um, when he brought in the tune originally, it just started straight with the riff. Mm -hmm. But the producer, um, you know, he said, well, it, what can we do with this? I mean, it's it's such a massive riff. Like, I feel like we need to build some kind of suspense just so that when it when it kicks in, you know, you're you're so ready for it. And it's this layering of the synth pads. It's the it's those kind of like uh like schizoid drum fills and obviously sting's voice mm -hmm. the melody I want my is actually the melody I'm glad from, you sung that and I didn't try too <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually the melody from uh don't stand so close to me isn't it yeah so so um I don't think they realized till afterwards, but mm -hmm. he basically recycled the melody. Um, the best version of this song, in my opinion, is actually not the recorded version. It's the Live Aid version. Live Aid version, yeah. And Sting's in his full kind of like, you know, uh, white linens. Of course. Uh, um, blowing in the wind. Knopfler's got his sweatbands on. But what's amazing is when the camera turns to look at the crowd, people don't really know the song yet because mm. obviously the record probably would have just come out 85 yeah of course um and so people are sort of clapping along but no one knows the words yeah and you're just looking at them and you're thinking this song is so big and you you're, yeah. you're just you're, you know you're just sort of trying to catch up with it um so yeah that that would be in my opinion one of the greatest intros and ever. it is so weird because i would have been nine or ten when that come out and, and I, I can remember like that album sleeve like just being everywhere and then we didn't have MTV but that video if you could if you got to see it it was like oh my god you know you were yeah. staring at the future play yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. it's amazing still are. and like <laughs> and what's weird is like I'd like to know how old Mark Knopfler was when they recorded that because it feels like all of them people look like my dad's mates yeah. in the middle of the 80s, but they yeah. were like cutting-edge pop stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just think, well, how old they were? Like, because I remember, you, you know, you, you look at them now, and it's weird. I, I, I just always have that kind of thing of like, he must have been mid-40s, but you'll probably find out he was like late 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he sort of, he didn't really age for a period of about 20 years. He sort of just <laughs> he looked the same. Um, and he just looked like your mate's dad. Yeah, completely. You know um, we actually made a record in Knopfler's studio. We did our third record in his studio. Um, I, I, I don't know how... Well, we were in rough trade at the time and I think Jeff Travis must have had access to it. I, d I don't know how, but, you know, it's, it, it's, um, it's the most cutting edge. It's like walking aboard, you know, like the Starship Enterprise. It yeah. is insane. I mean, they win best studio every year um the golden mic award or whatever it is um but uh we were we were recording in there for our third record and 
one day I was sat outside having a fag and this this uh this guy on a scooter pulls up outside and um he's got his helmet on so I couldn't see who it was turned out to be Martin Opfler but if you saw the scooter it was it you know it was like the most beat up like crappy yeah. scooter um nothing we're not talking like Vespa yeah you know we're talking like uh, you know a second hand Honda yeah uh, and he shows up and he presses his beeper and you know the the electric doors go up and he walks in and we had a little chat and I said you know I I'm I'm losing my voice and I was, I was I'd been trying to do this vocal and I'd got so frustrated I went outside for a fag and um and he said well you know I smoked all the way through the 80s and you know I'm not I'm not going to tell you to put your fag out cuz I know how good a cigarette tastes he said but what I used to drink was um hot toddies he said that's right. that's how he used to hit all the notes um and he came in and had a little listen to the tune. And he was the most down-to-earth, like, lovely man. Most unassuming, you know, yeah. just showing up on his little scooter. Um, but he is, I mean, he is a bona fide rock god. Arguably one of the biggest rock gods of, of, yeah. of certainly the 80s, if yeah. not all time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wonderful. Was Was there any other considerations for this other than, than uh, money for nothing? <sighs> A couple of others crossed my mind. I actually had thought about choosing Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Nice. But I'd, I, I listened to one of your other episodes, which was with Frank Carter, and mm -hmm. I think he chose that. I can't remember if he chose it for, for the intro or for a song mm -hmm. that reminded him of his childhood, or I can't remember which one it was. So I thought, I thought I'll go for Dire Straits. But that, that song also has yeah. an incredible intro. Absolutely. Track two, Blaine. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. This one, um, there was no question, there was no doubt in my mind. It's Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. Okay. Um, when did you hear that? I heard that when I was, it would have been, I would have been about eight or nine. And at the time I was living in France, so, I mean, there's a little bit of a story about it. Uh, it's not ho hopefully not too much of a weep story. I'll try not to well up. But um, my parents had separated when I was quite young. And so my sister and I grew up in France, in rural France with my mum. My dad carried on living in London. Uh, and occasionally I would have to fly back for hospital appointments. And um, oh, I would have been seven or eight and I'd my mum would take me to the airport and she'd put me on the flight to London, um, flying to Heathrow. My dad would pick me up and he'd take me to, to this hospital appointment. And so they'd, they'd be, yeah, once or twice a year. Um, and I think as a kid, getting on a flight on your own was quite scary. Terrifying. It, w it was quite scary. And there'd always be, um, you know, the airline staff would always be lovely and they'd give you like a little colouring book and um, like a little kiddie meal. Um, but it was really exciting and it, it was, it was exhilarating, but it was also, there was, there was quite a sort of big, um, emotional component to it, which was coming over, seeing my dad. Um, and usually I'd just have two or three days with him. And then I, he'd put me on the plane and I'd fly back to France. Um, and other than that, I just see him at Christmas or in the summer, summer holidays. And, uh, I remember on one of those occasions we were, 
driving back from the hostel to the airport for me to fly back home. And um, he put on Transformer and Satellite of Love came on and something struck me about it. I, I didn't really understand the lyrics, but the lyrics spoke to me. Uh, there was something in the... I suppose if I was to kind of musically try and dissect it, there's this really jovial piano playing, quite jazzy piano sort of arrangement, but um, with these with these sort of melancholic descending chords. And um, in a way, I suppose one shouldn't, shouldn't try and in intellectualize it, but just something about the song spoke to me and communicated it you know, a, a feeling that resonated with how I felt. And um, and I remember on that journey looking and I could, I was crying and I remember trying to sort of move my head. I was sat in the back and I remember trying to move my head so that my dad couldn't see I was crying. But then I caught a glimpse of his eye in the, um, in the uh, sun visor and I saw that he was crying and I just remember. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was one of those moments that, music really can um touch on something incredibly deep uh you know in your experience in your kind of human experience which at that age i was too young to understand and but i didn't need to understand it you know it was it was almost like a it was a mechanical thing the music just went in there and did something so looking back at that now the emotion that you would have experienced then was that longing was that sadness what what what, what, what would you describe that as Probably both of those things, yeah. Um, just, I think it was that feeling of distance. Um, and you know, in the song, he's talking about, you know, soon the moon will be, f we, the moon will be filled with parking cars. Um, and it felt like getting in the plane, flying back to France, it felt like going to the moon, you know, cause it was so far away from home. Um, and it sort of became my home really. Uh, but I also feel that h home is, as a concept, I think home is sort of embodied in your parents' voice. Like wherever your parents are is home. It doesn't really matter where you are. And I think that, that song really um, epitomized that feeling for me. And I mean, the other thing about it is it's, it's three, I think it's three and a half minutes long. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah. It feels like an opus. It feels like you're going to the moon and back. Yeah. It's it is it's a bit like um I always think of the kinks this time tomorrow, which is again is like it feel it's got the aeroplane sounds in it and it is like this kind of mini symphony. It's like a sort of pocket symphony. And Satellite Satellite of Love feels like one of those songs. Yeah. Um the fact that you can achieve that depth of emotion um and communicate something so profoundly in three and a half minutes is a testament to the power of pop music i think yeah, absolutely i was i was living in france uh it was actually wonderful um uh, i i went to a very small school there was 11 kids uh there was three age groups 11 kids in total all being taught in one classroom by this one super teacher who was absolutely incredible um in french french yeah so, so you I, can speak french well what actually happened is that um we moved there when i was eight and i think i was so 
kind of traumatized by probably having to uh, leave home behind, leave behind um, London, because I loved London. Um, I still do. It, you know, it is. It is. You know, it's the city I was born in. I mean, it's it's a. I've got complex feelings about London, but I think when you're born somewhere, there is there is this sort of inherent attachment to that place. Um, so I think there was a there was something about leaving London, the the feeling of being away from my dad, leaving my best mate Will, um, who I started the band with, mm-hmm. and so actually when we went out to France, I I didn't speak for the first term. So for the first term of school from September till Christmas, I didn't say a word. Um, my sister was amazing. She she was, you know, within a few weeks, she was gossiping with all the other kids and she was like a little French girl. I just, I, I became a mute. I didn't talk. Um, and I, I think it was partly a protest, you know, a sort of a childlike protest. Yeah. Of, I don't want to be here. This isn't, you know, these people aren't my friends. I don't understand this language. By the time it came to the second term, I think I'd sort of gotten over myself and I thought, actually, this isn't bad. I'm living in rural France. It's, you know, it's a beautiful part of the world. I started, I opened my mouth to speak and I was fluent in French. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And it just shows like you're such a sponge at that age, you know, and I, and it had all gone in and I, I'd, That's insane. Yeah, I I I hadn't spoken up in class. I hadn't made any friends, but I'd obviously just been registering it all, listening to everything. And by the time I decided to speak, um, it was all there. Yeah. Um, and it's bizarre. I mean, I couldn't do that now if I went to live in another country. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd it'd probably take um, having lessons and you know living somewhere for a few years. But at that age, I think you really are a sponge. Yeah. Track three, Blaine. The song reminds you of your time at school. This would be Strokes, the modern Secondary age. Secondary school, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, this would be... Um, it was, I think, 2001, I turned 16. And by this point, I was living back in the UK. My parents had... Um, they hadn't got back together, but they they'd sort of buried the hatchets and they were friends again and I they decided that they wanted to put me in um in they wanted to come back to England for me to go to secondary school and my sister so um I went to a school out near Reading um kind of on the outskirts of Reading and it was a school that was it was actually it had been a it actually been a school for the merchant navy for for um for parents that wanted to bring their kids into the merchant navy once upon a time and although that tradition isn't part of the school today the uniforms were still there so we had to wear these uh they were called number 2s so you so in the week you wore um they were basically like kind of woolen knitted sweaters with patches and epaulets uh shiny shoes berets and then the weekends you had to wear your number ones which was like the full-on kind of naval regalia with the with the peaked cap and all the rest of it um was that a boarding school it it was a boarding school i i didn't board i lived nearby so i just went in as a day pupil um and i didn't fit in at all i spent all my time in the art school uh, just trying to escape it all, really, because I think it was it was one of these 
like so many of those kind of um privates you know boarding schools and so on they they pride themselves on uh the rugby team on the rowing team all this kind of stuff i mean i i've got nothing against sport i get i i, I understand the appeal of competitive sports mm. but it's just never been for me i've i've never been um you know i wasn't i wasn't made that way you know yeah. i think my interests fall in other places and it, and it was very much in in uh in painting and drawing and making music was that encouraged there um it wasn't discouraged but it didn't feel like it was part of um the culture of being at that kind of that kind of a school yeah. um the facilities were decent you know we we actually we were taught how to um how to produce on on music software which which I actually really value you know so when I was when I was 15 16 I was I was learning how to use um four track machines and logic and pro tools and things like this so that that was one aspect of it that was um that I really appreciated but I didn't feel any kind of kinship with the other kids at school did you have friends there not really no I was I was bullied I was bullied quite badly throughout my teens um and to Why? be honest because she was different yeah i mean i think yeah essentially essentially um i suppose i didn't fit the mold um in that kind of an environment i i didn't feel like it was an environment that fostered individuality um or at least the kind of my interests didn't feel like they they were the interests of most of the kids in that school. There was one or two kids that were that were into music, but um, everything sort of changed. I think it was when I came in for sixth form. It was it was it was when I was I turned sixteen and we started um, we started year year twelve, and a couple of kids came in that hadn't been there for the for for GCSEs, and um, they've since become my best friends in the world. So actually out of this quite, I'd say like slightly negative experience of secondary school, I've actually found, you know, two or three people that have gone on to, to we've, you know, we're, we're very much there for each other and we've gone, gone into similar fields uh, in music and, and art. Um, but that year, 2001, everything changed and I can pinpoint it as being when, we we were sat we were sort of bombing off sports one afternoon because I was, you know, as I said, I was never interested in the sort of competitive sports aspects of school, and so we were, we were, we were bumming around in the musical one afternoon, and my mate Chris came in with the Modern Age EP, and he just said you got to listen to this, and he put it on, and it felt like someone came in and pressed the reset button on a clock. Um, music in this I mean I think to, pe to people who are like some of your <clears throat> sorry I'm just going to drink some water my voice is going um, perhaps to some of your listeners that have um, uh, you know all your, um, all your listeners will be familiar with the Strokes music but I think if you were if you were a teenager at that time there was such a sea change when when the strokes showed up it really felt like it w it felt like the dredges of Britpop um if you looked at what was 
kind of popping off at that time. It was new metal, it was UK garage. And I've got nothing against that kind of music, but it wasn't for me. It didn't speak to me. It didn't feel like my tribe. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hear the songs. Just go over to Spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side and i think even on the kind of more indie side of things up until then you know post Britpop, you had that kind of lull where for me, I, I thought it was a low. Where it become the kind of era of acoustic guitars. It was Coldplay, Travis, Embrace, Turing Breaks, and I have no issues with them bands. But you know, I was I was a lot older than than you at that point. But I imagine for you know someone fifteen, sixteen, that's not saying a lot to them. Whereas the urgency of the Strokes, that's gonna that's gonna change everything, isn't it? Absolutely. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. It, I think um there were some uh there were some amazing records that came out in that era, but I think spe- speaking kind of broad strokes, it wasn't it it wasn't an era, I think, in British music that felt dangerous or exciting. Completely. Um and when when I heard that song, it just felt like thank God, someone's come to save us, you know? And I think um, you look at what was happening in 2001 and it was really, um, obviously the Twin Towers came down, you know, and New York became, it sort of became this focus of the world's attention. And I think there was something about 
the strokes coming out of that um, environment, out of that, you know, I think New York was really hurting, you know, and uh, what happened is there was this kind of, there was a response in, in the musical underground to that. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a great book, you'll probably know it, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is very much a document of that, of that time. Um, and I think it conveys what I'm trying to say, yeah. which was that the world needed some kind of, um, it needed an explosion, a musical explosion. And I think the Strokes, they brought that. It's something just clicked. And um, guitar music felt rebellious again. It felt dangerous. You mentioned Lou Reed earlier. Did hearing the Strokes make you look back as well at, at you know New York bands of, of past years and stuff? Did you go back and you know because they were constantly citing yeah. television uh, Ramones and and Talking Heads and mm. the, the CBGBs kind of New York? Like was was that something? Did, did they open that up to you, or was you already quite familiar with some of the bands through through yeah. the stuff you was exposed to growing up? I did. I mean, I. I, I that that felt like more something your dad would say is like oh this is just Lou Reed was doing this 35 <laughs> yeah, years ago you know what I mean but um I mean it's interesting when you when you read it, interviews back with the strokes from that time because they weren't actually listening to te- they didn't know who television were really no they were just making it up I mean they were listening to um oh, who was the band that they're really into don't um, spoil it for me Blaine it was uh Guided by Voices. Guided by right. Voices was the band that the Strokes all yeah. had a mutual love for. They're in the video to what's is, is it Strokes video where it's a game show, and they're 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 on a game show. I think I know the one you mean. I yeah. don't know if it was for someday. It might have been. Yeah. And Guided by Voices are the other team. Okay. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Makes sense. But um, I think you could hear the traces. You could hear. You could hear the DNA of that music, but it didn't matter. You know, I think I think pop music is so cyclical. Things yeah. come back around, um, and uh, that's just part of the fabric. I think of of the way that pop music works. So that didn't bother me. It didn't mo- bother me that I could hear Lou Reed in their music, or you know, all the Ramones, as you said. If anything, it added to it. Yeah, because completely. That, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and did it open you up to the likes of the yeah yeah yeahs and 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 the other stuff that was coming out of there at that absolutely. point? Absolutely, yeah. I remember going to see the yeah yeahs on. Um, they released uh, the Bang EP, I think yeah. it was, and I saw them play on the at the Forum, um, which was a huge gig for them to play. I mean, that was before the f- their first record, Fever Tell, came out. So that shows the amount of interest in what yeah. was happening in that scene at that time. Absolutely, and obviously all the Libertine shows, which yeah. was, which which very much felt like, you know, um, the sort of um, the British response to what was happening in New York. There was such a synergy there, and um, we used to we used to come down to London at the weekends, and we'd go and see. Um, you know, all these little secret libs shows in Whitechapel around the East End. And it just felt like, I don't know, it just felt so dangerous. And, um, I mean, genuinely, you'd meet people at these gigs. We just thought, what rock did you crawl out from? Yeah. Um, 
and it felt like an environment it felt it felt like stepping into the underground and um and i think the strokes have so much um to be thanked for for kind of for 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 uh for igniting all of that absolutely what did you want to be at school i wanted to be a painter that's actually one of my I've, terrible there, there's, there's, attempts. <laughs> there, there is some uh, incredible art floating about in this well, amazing space. There's bits and pieces. I mean, I, I, um, I'm not going to say I destroyed most of it, but I've, I never felt like. Um, uh, I, I, I still keep sketchbooks. I mean, this I've got a sketchbook here, which is. I mean, I looked at the notes uh, that you've done for for Greg's podcast, and even the notes look amazing. I think a, a sketchbook just feels like it's very easy, particularly when you're, you know, sat on on buses, you know, going to festivals and all the rest of these things. It's very easy to kind of keep a sketchbook going, mm. and and um, I, I I I do still very much like to draw. I just I find it just relaxing more than anything. It's yeah. a way to kind of unwind, yeah. um, you know, stick on a record or a podcast and just draw. That still just brings me so much joy. Um, and until uh, things started picking up with the band, that's what I thought I was, I was going to be doing. I thought I was going to be, you know, trying to, trying to sort of make my way as an artist. And um, I'm almost quite grateful I didn't have to because I, I think I don't know. It feels like such, a, you know, people talk about the the art world being, uh, sorry, like the fashion world or the music world being. Um, uh, full of deceit and slightly poisonous, but I mean the art world feels very um, like a very tricky, uh, you know, industry to, tr to sort of navigate in. So I'm 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 thankful that music came along and you know and and um, and found me. I suppose. Okay, well we'll we'll pick up on that now once uh, we get this next track out of the way, which is the first song you remember buying from a record shop. This would be, uh, it was Sugar Coated Iceberg by Lightning Seeds. Okay. Do you remember it, where you bought it? Um, I bought it from, so I was going to school in um, Oxfordshire and I bought it from Abingdon. There was a music shop in Abingdon, um, which was also one of the first places to stock our demo when we made our first band demo. We took it there and they sold it for us trying to remember I feel terrible that I can't remember the name of the shop they gave you your first foot up and you can't even <laughs> remember the name of the shop I feel disgraceful so modern music right it was called modern music okay. in Abingdon it's, I think it might still be there right um, um, and it sold instruments it was one of these kind of old world you know where you'd go in you could buy you know you could rent a saxophone for school you could you could buy a recorder you could still buy sheet music and they had a little cd section um and they had you know you had you had the cd singles i mean vinyl they might have had vinyl but this mm. this sort of preceded the vinyl um resurgence, resurgence yeah. uh resurgence really so it was it was cassette singles cd singles and obviously um albums and i bought should code an iceberg it would have been 96 so i just moved back to the uk um to go to secondary school i would have been 11 and i remember the first time i heard the song i was i was off sick from school and um 
I I was slightly delirious and I remember lying in bed and I was listening to it would have been Radio One, I guess, and um it was in the charts at the time. And I just remember the sort of synth brass, the sorry, that's something else I'm saying. Um anyway, there is synth brass in it. Uh and there was something about it that I'd I was I'd missed out on Britpop because I'd lived in France. Mm -hmm. Um we didn't have TV and um, I didn't really listen to, to British radio. So the only knowledge I had of Britpop was my dad bringing out um, music magazines to me um, in the holidays. And I remember one of them had Supergrass on the cover when um, Ashikoko came out. And I vividly, vividly remember showing him showing me the magazine cover and saying, this is the enemy. Uh, <laughs> which is which is ironic because Supergrass were probably listening to I was I was brought up on you know prog rock yeah. but that's we were probably listening to the same records yeah you know, like early Floyd ELO Hendrix yeah. that's that's probably what Supergrass were listening to um, and I've actually told this anecdote to Gaz and we've had a little chuckle about it um, but so when I came back to the UK I'd missed out on Britpop and I and. But when I went to school, kids still had bowl cuts, were still wearing like Reebok classics. And I guess like the the Euro, Euro 96 Cup had just happened. So it did still feel like this cool Britannia thing was still in the air. Um, and when I heard the lightning seeds on the radio, um, I thought, oh, this is this is great. What this is this is what Britpop's all about. And I suppose it was the kind of it was it was it was getting towards the end of Britpop, but it still felt like it was part of that um, part of that sound. And um, what about the likes of Blur and Oasis? Did that make it out to you? I I don't remember Blur. I w I wasn't aware of Blur, but I I I, I knew I'd seen um, I knew who the Gallagher brothers were, but I hadn't heard their music. Yeah. Um, so I was very kind of green to Britpop in general. But that song, there was something about Shikode Icebergs that had, it had a kind of play, <clears throat> it had a kind of playful innocence and an imagery about it. You know, in the video, they're in this ice rink. Um, and I don't know, it was just, it was just a cool record. Yeah. Um, actually, Ian Brody was based on Eel Pie Island. What, for, producing? For a little while, yeah. So he, um, Townsend used to have a barge um, which was known as Eel Pie Records and it was moored up on the island here um, in the 90s and Ian Brody actually worked out of it. And interestingly, we occasionally get mail for him and somewhere I've got a package which arrived a couple of years ago and it was a, it was a brown envelope and it just had 20 cardboard cutouts of Ian Brody's face in it and no explanation. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely no explanation. So... Ian, if you're looking for those cardboard cutouts of your face, give us a ring. I've got them. Brilliant. Oh, I hope he didn't order his own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So did he, was he producing, did he produce the first Coral album? He did. He did do the first Coral mm. record. I think that was done up in, um, in Parr Street in Liverpool. Right. So this would have been slightly later than, no, maybe it would have been slightly before that. Yeah. Um, 
so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what uh, which records he made down here, but he was he was based on the island for a little while. Okay, so deciding to sort of not pursue a career with a paintbrush. Was you already playing guitar, or was you playing? Or you're sitting in front of a very nice piano uh, mm. right now. Could you play the piano? Was you was you know was you already playing music yourself? Not really. No, I I was uh, I was a drummer. So drums were my first instrument. Um, I got a secondhand knackered old drum set. I think for my tenth birthday it was. Uh, my dad had found it in the back pages of Loot which shout some of your, yeah, shout out to Luke. <laughs> I'm sure some of your listeners will remember Luke, you know, it, it before you had Gumtree and the, all the rest of it, you had, um, it was almost like the yellow pages yeah. and it was all these classified ads for, you know, things that people yeah. were throwing away. Um, and you could pick up second hand drum kits, second hand drum kits. And I think he got it 50, 50 quid or something. I've still got it. It's still got the band's name written on the front, on the front drum skin. Cause I, I'd seen pitch the Beatles and that's what you had to do. You had to write your, your band's, your band's name on the front skin. So I was a drummer and Will, uh, the Jets guitarist was, um, he got a guitar on on his 10th birthday. He got a, he got a Squire Stratocaster, which he used for many years. It was actually stolen out of our van in Sheffield, um, on our first tour. But, uh, yeah, so I so I was the drummer and Henry, my dad, played the bass. And um, I think our first gig was on my 11th birthday and it was just covers. We I think we played four tunes um, and just to my schoolmates out in France. What, what were them tunes? We played Light My Fire. Yeah. We played Comfortably Numb. Uh, I think we played La Bamba. <laughs> We have one original, actually. We had one original tune, which was a bit of a sort of space rock uh, opus. It was called Moonlight Satellite, and it was about 13 minutes long. Um, I've still got a recording of it somewhere. Wonderful. I think a recording still survived. And we used to make cassette um, demos. So we so so we recorded our set. So we recorded the four songs with the one original song on it. Um, but we didn't know we didn't know about dubbing. We didn't know about tape dubbing that you could record a cassette and then you could get, you know, if you got a cassette deck with two tapes, you could dub it onto the other one. So to make copies, we'd have to re-record the songs all over again. Um, and it took so long that we only ended up making three copies of the album. One was for me, one was for Will and one was for EMI. And we dropped it off at EMI Records in, uh, in Hammersmith and we were, yeah, we would have been 11. And I remember us walking in and we, we just went to the front desk because we thought this is how you got assigned. You Who had was singing? Uh, it was actually myself and my sister. She doesn't make music anymore, but she was in the first incarnation of the band because um, she had a higher voice. And we didn't know about transposing songs. So we just played them in the key on the record and I couldn't hit some of the notes. So she, so she could, so she sang. Um, and that was our first ever demo. So that would have been... 1995 somewhere around then and we dropped it off e at EMI and I I just remember the the girl at the front desk just having just being completely bewildered by these these 11 year olds walking in and giving her this cassette tape and it was all hand-drawn graphics and um we still haven't heard back EMI if you're listening if you're listening oh that's amazing okay track five 
the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland. Was there a Clubland? Yes. So uh, the club, which for me was my mecca, really, was Trash. Was there a Trash? Yeah. Did you have a go? Uh, I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think who else has picked Trash. Tim from Transgressive oh, picked Trash. Russell Block Party picked Trash. Right. Yeah. So uh, you were in good company there. Yeah. Well, I remember Russell, um, he used to be a flyer boy. And I remember him handing out flyers for, I think it was a night at the garage. Someone had a night upstairs at the garage and Russell was the flyer boy for that. So I think I remember him flyering all the queues of all the gigs at that time. Um, I can't imagine him doing that. He's the sh one of the shyest people I know. I know. I can't I know. imagine him just dishing out flyers. And you know what? He hasn't aged. He hasn't aged a day. He still looks exactly yep. the same. Um, he's an Essex boy, isn't he? He's he's an Essex boy. Russell, he is. Isn't he? he is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's he's wonderful, Russ. Um, but yeah, the so so trash at the end. Um, I I I caught the. Uh, I'd say it was probably the last couple of years at Trash. It was when I left school. I left school in 2003, and I think Trash stopped in 2005 or 2006. But then it became Durr, mm -hmm. which was basically the same club. I, I'm sure Errol wouldn't mind mm. me saying that. It was basically, it was the same audience, but he partly, um, he sort of, he wanted to bring Chandra, his partner, more into it. So, so Durr was sort of more Chandra's, Chandra's responsibility because Errol was DJing a lot more kind of around the world because he'd become superstar. You know, a superstar which he you know um, he still you know I think is still seen as one of the legends in that um, he was the warm-up DJ for in, in my formative years of an indie clubber he used to go to the gas club in Leicester Square long gone but um, there was a guy called Jeff Automatic was the resident I know Jeff. Yep. Shout out to Jeff. Yep. So Jeff was the resident and uh and there was this 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 young lad called Errol that was the warm up. And uh, even then he was playing great records, uh just you know, indie bangers and then literally years later when I kept hearing the name Errol Olkin, I was thinking, That's Errol from the gas club. <laughs> yeah. Um it, I mean it really was like Trash was one of those places that you had to be you had to be dressed a certain way. So there there was a kind of exclusivity to it, but it wasn't like the other West End clubs where, mm. you know, you had to be smartly dressed um to sort of fit the clientele. Trash was the opposite. You had to look like you hadn't made any effort at all. And people would come in, you know, I mean, actually that's not entirely fair. I mean, it was more like you had to make an effort to be yourself. So there wasn't a sense of a uniform. The weirder, the more kind of bushwhacked you looked, um, the more likely you were to be let in. And it was just rammed every week. You and can take that back to the, the, the early things like the Blitz Club and you know the New Romantic yeah. era and things like that. It's, it's, I think that's, that's really important in, in, in creating scenes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think... Um, club culture is a junction between whatever's happening in all different cultural spaces at that time, be it fashion, um, be it, uh, you know, be it music, be it art. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, you had Days and Confused, you had ID, you had Super Super. So these were the kind of style Bible, Bibles of that time 
that was so um, part of that culture. And, and the song that instantly takes me back to that time is Standing in the Way of Control, Gossip. Uh, perhaps even more so one of the remixes. I remember there was a Soul Wax remix. There was a La Tigra remix. There was Errol did a remix. Um, and, it, and it really was, it was that kind of era of the indie of like the indie disco remix. Massively. Like, you know, if you brought out a single, you'd have, you didn't put out B-sides, you yeah. put out remixes with it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, if you got like a, a Soul Wax remix or a, um, you know, like a Punk's Chomp Up remix or like Sebastian a... Sebastian was doing a lot. Sebastian or yeah. a Justice remix, you know, that was the kind of Holy Grail. Um, and it was that, I suppose it was kind of what was happening with DFA in New York and the whole kind of electric clash Massively. thing had come over. It taken a couple of years to come over here, but um, what was happening in London felt like a direct kind of counter counterpiece to what was happening there. Yeah. And obviously in Paris with all the Ed Banger stuff. Um, and I think that song, it had just such a, as soon as it started, you just had that. That's a call of arms right there. And it was such a call to arms wherever you were in the club. And it don't relent, does it? No, it's just the most, and you just have that. That drum beat is just like this kind of, this train going through it. And it felt so refreshing to hear this like gospel vocal, you know, and she's right up there with the, whoa, yeah. It was just like this, such an empowering vocal and it and it was this kind of anthem um you know it was well it was an anthem for for same-sex marriages in america under the under the bush administration um so it was a protest song i suppose you know if you think about it that way um and but even beyond the lyrics it just had this such a kind of unrelenting power to it and um you know, I suppose moving on from that, you kind of, you got into new rave and, you know, I suppose the kind of, um, that culture going into the mainstream and you had skins and you had top shops selling fluoro jeans and yeah. before you knew it, it had killed, it killed the yeah. scene, you know, and it was dead. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think scenes are meant to last forever. No, not you know? at all. Um, That's fashion. It's got to come and go. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think I, f I just feel so grateful for those years at Trash. Um, what, what did you want from clubbing, Blaine? I wanted our Hacienda. You know, I wanted our Studio 54. I wanted um, somewhere that, you know, I could be an individual and somewhere that I felt that I, you know, it was it was a thing of finding your tribe but actually it wasn't your tribe it was all these it was this it was this kind of melting pot of different tribes sub tribes um and um it was somewhere where labels didn't matter it didn't matter what you know sex you were it didn't matter what you know how you identified sexually um your gender it didn't matter what your background was what your um you know orientation was in any sense it was just somewhere that it was it was it was such a melting pot and it was somewhere that um so we so at that time 
2005, 2004, 2005, we were making our first record actually here on the island underneath where we're sat. We had, um, we had a shed, which is where we record our first record. And um, I remember we'd, we were tracking, it was our first couple of singles. We recorded a song called Zoo Time and we recorded a song called uh, On My Feet and You Can't Fool Me Dennis. And we before they'd been mixed we'd take the rough mixes down to trash on a monday night this was the other thing about trash it was on a monday night um i'm a club promoter blaine that's no easy thing to have a busy <laughs> night on a monday anywhere there you go and i mean i think that that must have had such a an impact on the demographic because if you had a proper job you couldn't go clubbing on a monday mm. night we but we were all so young you know we were we were 17, 18. I mean, there were definitely older people as well that would just kind of ride on through the weekend and still come mm. down. Um, but so we take these unmixed, um, rough mixes of our songs. We'd record it downstairs. We'd take them down to Trash on a Monday night and we'd hand the CD to Errol and he'd take it without even listening to it. He'd cue it up and he'd, he'd play the track and he'd play us out. He'd just look at the tempo and he'd, he'd cue it up in his playlist and he'd drop the track and um, because it was him, because he was this kind of, you know, arbiter of taste, people just, he just commanded a respect and an attention. Um, and people, the day after he played something, all the blogs would be firing up and everyone would be trying to get hold of this track. Um, and he did a remix of Zoo Time of our, of our first single, which he used to play. Um, and I just thought there was something so brave about that. He wouldn't even listen to it. He'd just stick it on. And uh, so when we were making our second record, we went to him and we said, you know, would you like to produce our record? And he did. So he produced 21. And, um, and you know, he's since gone on to become, you know, an incredibly reputable producer. You know, he's made two Ride albums. He made... Um, uh, the late the peer record he made the long blondes record again two albums that I associate so much with that time oh late of the peer wow yeah. what an album yeah track six your favourite song from an artist from your home county okay this was really difficult I found okay. this really hard because I don't really, I think like I was trying to say earlier, this this idea of, of home. Yeah. I'm from London, but I grew up in France and I went to school um, in Oxfordshire. Now the band's based here in Twickenham on Eelpie Island. So I, I don't really know where home is. Home is sort of wherever my family is. Um, but we are pretty much based here now. So I, I, just, I thought I'd go for... Um, a Twickenham artist and I chose Robert Wyatt Robert Wyatt was wasn't born in Twickenham so he was born in Bristol and obviously was very associated with the sort of Canterbury folk scene um, with Soft Machine and um, and uh, Matching Mole which was another band he had of the 70s but he lived in Twickenham for many years um, he lived in Twickenham, uh, I think, from about 75 till the late 80s or even 90s, just over the river. So literally the other side of this park, there's a little road um, that, com that comes down to the river. And that's where, that's where he lived with 
his partner Alfie. Um, Robert Wyatt is a hero of mine. Um, he, I think he's someone that his records don't sound like anyone else's. I mean, you put on you put on a Robert Wyatt record, and it is just so him through and through. He kind yeah. of has this whole musical world you know he paints with these colors which is so um idiosyncratic i think you know there's jazz in there there's there's ambient music there's um there's kind of patchwork like sound collage um he first and foremost obviously was he was a drummer he was the drummer in soft machine um some people will know Robert White's story, others won't. I mean, basically when um, he, I think he was 21 or 22, he was, at a, he was at a house party and he had been drinking tequila and Southern Comfort cocktails all night, which apparently he'd uh, learned from Keith Moon. It was Keith Moon's favourite drink. And so never he'd been drinking... Never take drink advice from Keith Moon. There you go. <laughs> Um, and he, he fell out of a fourth, a fourth story window and he attributes, uh, the fact that he survived to the fact that he was so out of it, that his body, mm -hmm. you know, being so inebriated meant that he, he essentially, you couldn't know, fight the fall. He couldn't exactly, mm. exactly. And so he survived the fall, but he became paralyzed from the waist down. And that really actually had, I'd say, quite a profound effect on the music that he subsequently went, went on to make. You know, he, still, he was still able to play the drums, but only top kit, so sort of cymbals and snare. Um, and uh, he played the trumpet. He's an amazing trumpet player as well. And he has these beautiful, very soft vocals. Um, probably, I mean, shipbuilding is... is was an Elvis Costello song that he covered and is is probably his best uh, best known hit, I suppose. You yeah. know, he played it on Top of the Pops. Um, but Rock Bottom is the record that he made in that recovery period from that accident. And it's an album... Um, I think it'd be wrong to say that uh, it's about the tragedy that happened to him because he had started writing some of the songs before the accident, okay. but he'd recorded it in that period of recovery when he was essentially cooped up in bed and he, he got um, the Virgin Records mobile recording studio brought to his house and, um, and that's how he recorded it. So essentially just sat in bed and he recorded all his parts um, that way. And it was produced by Nick Mason from Pink Floyd who actually helped to fund the record because they'd put on two um, fundraising gigs for um, to support Robert in his recovery. And um, he was also given this, he was actually given the house in Twickenham by Julie Christie, by the actress. Um, so lots of people came in to, to sort of help that record um, come to life. And it, it feels like there's such a, there's such a hopefulness and a resilience coupled with this sort of, underlying melancholy that that runs throughout throughout the album and the first song on the record is a song called um sea song when i got the record uh it was a recommendation by a friend and it came out on the Ryko disc label and Ryko disc used to release all their cds in these kind of 
green, translucent green CD cases. And there was something about that CD case with the music, with the imagery and the lyrics that had this, that, that gave the album this kind of underwater feeling. So when I hear, whenever I hear the music, I feel like I'm kind of immersed in it. And it's, it's got such, it had such an impact, um, I think on me also as a vocalist, because Robert Wyatt is someone that sings so, um, his voice is, 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 is so his own. You know, he, he, no one sings like Robert Wyatt. He, you know, he's got such a, a unique, a unique, um, timbre and a kind of a, a delicateness, a fragility to his voice. And I think that was also definitely a big influence on me as a vocalist, you know, in terms of singing in your own, in your own yeah. voice. Wonderful. Last track. You can play DJ now and, uh, and it's your opportunity to, uh, to recommend a song that people may not may not know. Okay. I'm going to choose a song which is called Hammond Song by a band called The Roaches. Okay. Uh, they're not very well known. The Roaches were a... Um, they were three sisters. Uh, they came out of the Greenwich Village folk scene um in the 70s late 60s 70s they were actually um paul simon's backing singers on there goes rhyming simon on his really? solo record um so a bit like leonard cohen you know he, he used to take around he used to take around um female backing singers on tour and they appeared on on his record as well um they didn't make their own record until i think it was 78 79 even um and it's just called the roaches the first is the self-titled first record and it was produced by um robert fripp from king crimson king crimson are probably out of any artist they i, I think i'd attribute um the reason as to why I, I made my make music with the band to King Crimson that, you know, hearing their records was very much, um, you know, the conduit in us wanting to make music as, as a band. And, um, I'm a huge fan of everything that Fripp's done, you know, all, all his collaborations, obviously most known for playing the guitars on heroes, that kind of sustained guitar sound. And you can hear that in this song in Hammond song by the roaches. It's got that, kind of Eno but you know Eno Bowie Berlin sound it, it 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 it's got that feeling about it and yet it's this sort of pastoral um Laurel Canyon-esque beautiful meandering folk song with these three-part harmonies by the three sisters and it's just a it's just a beautiful record um whenever I make mixtapes for people I I like to make a lot of mixtapes for friends. It always goes on there. It's just one of those songs that um, transports you to somewhere else, um, kind of to another time. It's got yeah. this kind of wonderful plaintive sort of innocence about it. Um, and I think those harmonies that you only get with kind of family bands, you know, be it the Wilsons or... Um, you know, whoever it is, there's there's something about the quality of of siblings singing together. There's this kind of um, 
it's almost like a, a telepathy to the way their voices work and you can really hear that in in the roaches music um so yeah it's a wonderful record i i encourage anyone listening to go out and check it out well there'll be a, a spotify playlist to accompany this with all the songs that we've spoken about so uh hopefully they're on spotify uh, yeah i think they are right, they are wonderful then uh then we'll definitely add that so people can go and um check that out blame what's what's happening now history jets what's going on yeah so we've got a new record coming out it was actually meant to be out but um i had to have some surgery uh a few weeks ago which meant that we essentially our touring plans got scuppered for the year so um this is actually why i invited you down here today is because I'm really glad you did because i've never recorded anywhere like this it's wonderful <laughs> yeah it's it's a lovely spot and i'm i mean i'm essentially here for the next few months just recouping from my operation um and but really looking forward to bring out the record at the beginning of next year i think we're done it's yeah i mean it was all finished actually um at the end of last year so we we were sitting on it um to be released in september but that's now going to be january february so as, as long as we haven't fallen out of love with all the songs um i'm really looking forward to getting out and 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 uh getting on the road and, you know, playing that record live. Uh, yeah, so so that's what's, that's what's on the cards. But in the meantime, I'm here and I'm just trying to, um, I suppose, just keep myself busy. You know, I'm yeah. reading quite a lot. I've got my old four-track machine out, my yeah. Porter Studio, so I'm making some demos and, um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and doing things like this, which yeah. is really interesting for me to Wonderful. do. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you've, you've given up a bit of your time today to do this Blaine I've absolutely absolutely love doing this brilliant thanks for having me thank you there you have it how lovely is Blaine we we sat and chatted afterwards as well and it was a, a really really lovely couple of hours and um and I hope you've got as much joy out of that as as I did recording it um I'm back next week with another episode um if you've not looked before please go and have a look in the 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 back catalogue of this podcast because you can hear me having pod chats with stacks and stacks of really amazing creative people uh, whether they be musicians artists DJs producers actors go and have a look in the in the archives and see if there's anything there that you like um, and if you're listening on iTunes then give us a, a rating and uh, and and yeah, and if you see us on the social medias, then give us a like, love, share, retweet, because it all helps. And also, if you want even more content, I put a unique episode up each week on Patreon. So go and search Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, off the beaten track, and go over there and, and have a little look at all the things you can get from there. The one-stop shop for everything is offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's... Interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. 
also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 